If you brought a Bible, which uh, I hope you did, uh, open to Romans, or uh, maybe you brought your scripture journal that we gave out a couple weeks ago. Uh, If you didn't get one, we do have some more. There's a little podium in the back. You can grab uh, one of those um, ESV Book of Romans scripture journals. Take one. It's yours as I teased, but I'm also serious last week. If you already took one and you forgot it, don't take a second. Uh, But if you haven't got one yet, you could definitely grab one of those. We are in Romans, and this is our third sermon, our third message in this series. Two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, the Apostle Paul's greeting. Again, Paul, like all first century people, would write letters, and he adapted a normal letter writing style to suit his purposes in writing letters to people and churches. So he doesn't just say that he's Paul, but he he gives some of his Credentials, uh, called to be an apostle, set apart for this apostleship of, of bringing the gospel. We're going to hear a lot of that word today. Um, so that's verses 1 to 7, his, his introduction, his greeting. And then last week, verses 8 through 15, his thanksgiving. Again, in typical letter writing in that time, after a greeting, uh, writers would, would give thanks to the people that they were writing to. And so he does that. He thanks God. He says, your faith is being proclaimed in all the earth. Paul had never been to Rome. If you take a look uh, at the screen We walked through this map in detail two weeks ago. Here's just the summary. Uh, What you really need to know right there in the middle, Romans 57 AD, and then there's a little dotted line to that letter C. So Paul was in Corinth. He was on his third missionary journey. Uh, That uh, was covered in Acts 18, kind of the middle of 18 through uh, the early part of 21, chapter 21 of Acts. And on that third trip, he makes his way eventually to Corinth, and from there, he, he writes this, this letter. And you see the R on the far left of the map, Rome, the city that he longed to go to, had never been. Uh, what we, what we pieced together from the book of Acts and from history is that back in Acts chapter 2, so, so imagine, Paul's writing in 57 AD, so about 30 or so, uh, 20 so years back in the you know, 20, 25 years in the early to mid 30s, this important event happened. Jesus of Nazareth, this rabbi, this teacher had lived and, and then he was killed and then he was buried, but he rose on the third day. And, and then just some, uh, some 50 days or so after that in Jerusalem, uh, the Holy Spirit came, the church was born. We have that recorded in Acts 2. So again, it's 20 to 25 years earlier uh, there's people from all over the known world. It says even in Acts uh, chapter 2 that there were some visiting from Rome. And, and likely those were Jews and they hear the gospel. Remember Luke tells us in Acts 2 that over 3,000 people respond to his message and are, are saved. And some of those then are from Rome. They, they go back to Rome. By that time, there was a big Jewish presence in, in Rome uh, that's uh, attested in, in other parts, uh, other historical documents. And so the gospel goes back, and, and these new Christians, Jewish Christians there, they, they grow, a church has begun, uh, other non-Jews, Gentiles, or like we'll see today, Greeks, that's uh, a word Paul uses, they come to faith, and so you have this church made up of Jew and Gentile, but then something happens. Um, we, we prayed for Israel just a moment ago and the events happening. Well, there's always events happening around the world. And so there's an emperor who says all the Jews have to leave Rome. So the Jews get kicked out of Rome. And that's spoken about in, in the book of Acts a little later. So they, they travel away. And so now what's left of this church is mostly a Gentile 
church there in Rome. But then things change in the world as they do, and Jews are allowed back to Rome. And so these Jewish Christians return. But, but now, what was once a church made up of Jew and Gentiles, mostly Gentile now, and, and, and that creates some problems, some ethnic um, racial tension. And so a lot of what Paul's going to deal with in time in Romans has to do with some of this. Um, he's going to address things because he's the supposed apostle to the Gentiles, but he's never been. And, and, and now a lot of these Jewish Christians, they still very much love their traditions and the, the law. And, and he's going to talk about how Gentiles are part of this and they don't have to become Jews and it's not law keeping that gets you in. And, and so he's going to address things that this church made up of Jew and Gentile would, would be dealing with, these different struggles. We'll see that in time. But today, we come to, uh, I like to think of it as a hinge, just like a door has hinges that help it move. So Paul's given his greeting, he's given his thanksgiving, and now he's about to get into his letter, like the reason he's writing. But, but there's a, a transitional element, and that's what Romans 1, 16 and 17 are. They're, they're a transition, but they're more than, they're more than that. These are arguably um, the theme verses of this book. They are so dense theologically, they, they form the theme of Romans. If you want to know what is the purpose, the theme of the book of Romans, it's right here, Romans 1, 16 and 17. So you are supposed to have turned there, and I want to read for us Romans 1, 16 and 17, but I'm actually going to start at verse 15. It'll help us get the context here, the, the transitional element. So listen for it. I'll read 15, but you're following in your Bible. And as we switch to verse 16, hear how it acts as a transition. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. We are going to look actually this morning at just verse 16. We're going to spend a few minutes on just one verse, and we're looking at answering what you see on the screen in front of you, this, this question. What is the gospel, and why does it matter? What is the gospel, and why does it matter? And today's just part one. Next week, we'll add verse 17, Lord willing. And so a couple of weeks on this hinge transitional section, this, these verses that are the theme of the book. What is the gospel and why does it matter? That, that is what we need to look at today. And again, as I said, just one verse today, verse 16. One commentator says this of these uh, theologically dense verses. They are made up of, you'll, you grammar types uh, will love this. These verses are made up of four subordinate clauses each supporting or illuminating the one before it. It's like stair steps, okay? Four subordinate clauses, each supporting or illuminating the one before. So Paul's pride in the gospel, verse 16a, is the reason he's so eager to preach the gospel to Rome, verse 15. 
And that pride in the gospel, in turn, comes from the fact that this gospel contains or mediates, great word, God's saving power for everyone who believes. Verse 16b, and then why the gospel brings salvation to everyone who believes? Well, that's explained in verse 17a, the gospel manifests God's righteousness, and it's a righteousness based on faith or trust. And then finally, verse 17b, there's a scriptural confirmation for this connection between righteousness and faith. So two verses transitionary from greeting and thanksgiving into the body of the letter by these four clauses that build onto each other. And we're going to look at just two of them today in verse 16. One verse. What is the gospel and why does it matter? So we've talked about this before. Take a look at the screen. Uh, and if you want to take a screenshot of this or write this down in your journals, you can do that. I hope this makes sense. Um, we looked at this back in the spring uh, in a different message. The word gospel, that's one of those words that doesn't, right, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, it does, of course, but the context is what gives it the meaning because that word that we hear, the gospel, that English word, it comes from Old English, Godspell, or Godspell. Um, God, not meaning God like we think of, but, but good. And then spell, news. So this is a good news or a good story, a Godspell. And so that got brought together, these two words, these two ideas from, in Old English. And now we don't use Old English, thank you. We use modern English. And so we say gospel. So that's just the, the English. Okay, now let's take a look at the next one. This word, it's a translation. It's a translation of a, a Greek word. And, and you probably can't pronounce that word on the second line. That's euangelion in, in Greek. Okay, and that word, what does it mean? So that's the Greek word, euangelion. Well, it means... Good news, okay? So what happened in time? There's a Latin word, evangel, okay? And, and it's hard to see, um, but line two, Greek word, euangelion, and then third line, Latin word, evangel. Um, they kind of look the same. I know it looks to us like an E and a U and an A, and then what sounds like G's, but when you have two gammas in Greek, it's ang, okay? There's an N sound in there. So the Latin evangel, right? They, they, the Latin, they just transliterated from the Greek. When, when the Latin translation was being made and they saw this Greek word that means good news is euangelion, they made up a word, evangel, okay? Just did this transliteration. So not a translation, but transliteration to make up this Latin phrase, which again means good news, and you can hear in the Latin evangel, where we get our English word evangelical or evangelism. Okay, I know it's not supposed to be school. Hang with me. It's important because we hear some of these words all the time. Oh, those evangelicals. Some people bemoan on one side of the aisle. What do they mean when they say that? Well, they don't mean that. Right? Often in our day, if someone is an evangelical, that simply means a reference to how people vote in the United States. We have to remind ourselves the word comes from this Greek word, and there's all these connections, but the bottom line is it means good news. It's 
the gospel. And we're going to talk about that, that good news. And so personally, I love the word evangelical. Now, I think it needs to be defined. Uh, at Soma, we are evangelical. That's our denomination. But it means to be confessionally evangelical. Like we believe in this gospel, what, what the Apostle Paul said. We believe Romans 1.16. But even then, what, what is the good news? We, we have to keep digging a little bit more this, this morning. Let me ask a question. Um, what are you embarrassed about? Now, don't answer, uh, but just think for a minute. Probably there are some things that embarrass you. There's things maybe that you're ashamed of. And honestly, even as we talk about evangelical, maybe some of us are ashamed of and embarrassed by some people who claim that name but sure don't seem to live in light of God's good news, but they live in different areas. Maybe that's it. Um, maybe it's more hitting at home things in your life that you're embarrassed of or things you're ashamed of. I, I spoke this last week at um, Chapel for Grace Christian Academy. They invited me to come and, and speak to their junior high and high schoolers. And so they got a warm-up of this sermon um, and I teased Calvin, who joined me, that I could invite him up to give the message because he was there and he heard it. Uh, but I, I always do something when I talk to teenagers, which is not very often anymore. I was a youth pastor for 12 years, um, and I don't get to talk to teens as much as um, I would like to, honestly. It's fun and uh, things. But I always, when I go to a new group, I start my timer and I say, I'm giving you one minute to ask me anything you want to know. You've never heard me speak, and if you should listen to me. You should get to know me. And so go, you got one minute, any question. And so there were some easy softball lobs kind of came my way. And then one girl over on this side asked, what is your deepest, darkest secret? And I had promised I would answer any question. And, and then my my watch started vibrating. So my time was up and that was my escape. But I, I said, well, honestly, you don't want to know what my deepest, darkest secrets are, or I wouldn't have been invited here, you know, to to talk. And I got a little chuckle. But it bugged me that that was a lame answer, honestly. Like, I I hear, like, I've got to be ready for these teenagers. And then I thought about it later that day. You know what my deepest, darkest secret is? I enjoy listening to Kelly Clarkson, the first American Idol. Like, I still, I'll turn on songs that go back 15 years. And uh, that's just one of those things. Like, and the teenagers probably would have thought that was funny, like some of you. And it's not a secret. I listen to Kelly Clarkson sometimes, right? Um, Paul says here in verse 16, that he is not ashamed. He's not embarrassed. See, in our day, we hear ashamed, and we right away think psychological shame stuff. And I don't really think that's what Paul had in mind. I, I think he had more to do with, he's not embarrassed um, by the gospel. Uh, or to put it positively, he's, he's proud of the gospel. He doesn't, he's not going to hide. That's why he's eager to go to Rome. That's what he just got done saying. He's eager but why is he eager to, sh- to share this news, this, this good news? That's what the word means. He's not ashamed of it, he says. And it has to do, again, with the meaning of 
this, this word. Now, now Paul, uh, he lived in his time, of course, but, but he knew his Bible. For him, his Bible would have been what we call the Old Testament, and he would have heard the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint or the LXX, again and again and again. So he would have heard that, that word, euangelion, the noun there, and then the different verbal forms. He would have heard that word a bunch of times in different verses, especially in verses like what you see on the screen. Take a look for a second there. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Go up on high to a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. There it is. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. That, that's all gospel. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Or a few chapters later, Isaiah 52, verse 7, a verse Paul will quote later on in Romans 10, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who gossips the gospel, who's a good newser, who publishes peace, who brings gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. For Paul, when he is writing and, and coming up with a word um, and the other writers of the New Testament to describe who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, they come up with this word they know from their Bible, this word that talks about good news, this, this gospel word that they have heard that, that means good news. Now, what's, what's interesting, again, just hang on to some of these uh, tidbits of facts. Um, Paul, he uses gospel words, again, the noun and uh, the verbal form, 60 of the 76 times in the New Testament. So if you have a computer and you search, or if you have old books, lexicons that show you the, the accounts, this, this ver- uh, word comes up the noun, 76 times in the New Testament, and 60 of them are from Paul. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. He wrote the bulk of our New Testament, but this is an important word for him. And then the verbal form, it comes up 54 times, and the Apostle Paul uses 21 of them, almost half. So this is a word that means a lot to Paul. In Romans, Paul uses the noun nine times and the verb three times. And right here in chapter one, he's already used it about three or four times. Again, this is an important word. It's a word he heard. He knew about this good news of what God was doing and would do one day. Um, Eschatos, this eschatology, we sometimes think of it as the study of the end times, but really it means last things. What God is going to do to bring to consummation, everything that he's begun in the, the last things. And so that's this language of Isaiah. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet who bring good news. I, I've mentioned our high school missions trip to Mexico. We'll see if Alden remembers this. Um, one year, uh, one of the teams there at the, the base camp, um, they had a shirt that, that said, I want lovely feet. You remember that? And it was tied to this verse. Um, lovely feet are people that bring good news biblically. So this is Paul's Bible world. This is a word he's heard, a word he, he knows. Again, um, very important to him. He uses it uh, so, so often. But Paul also would have heard this word in, in the first century world, not because um, 
people that weren't Christians knew their Old Testament Bible and the Greek translation. But in the first century world, if on a battlefield an emperor won a great victory, which secured their peace and established this emperor's authority, what would he do? He would send out a herald, someone who announces something. He would send a herald out to declare his victory and peace and authority. And this proclamation in the Roman world, this proclamation of, of a victory by an emperor was called a, a gospel. So this word has this rich biblical background to Paul. He's used to verses like these in Isaiah, other passages in the Psalms. But then these emperors are, are using it. They're using it of um, when they're born and uh, now their lineage is going to continue. They say this is good news and these words are published. And so the apostle and the other writers, right, they, they, they say, that ah, we're, we're taking this word. This word has this rich Bible uh, depth to it. And even though it's used in, in the modern world for emperors and whatnot, no, this, this word summarizes the essence of Christianity, the, the heart of Christianity, gospel. It, it is the announcement. It, it's shorthand for the essential Christian message. Uh, Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, he writes that gospel language in Paul, the apostle, it refers to the message about Jesus and by extension, the act of proclaiming that message. This, This language refers to the message of Jesus and by extension, proclaiming that message. What is the gospel? Yes, it's good news, but good news about what? Well, it most simply is a declaration, an announcement. It's not advice. The gospel's not good advice. I have a good advice for you. It's good to, to brush your teeth at least twice a day, right? It's good to get eight hours of sleep. It's good to drink your coffee black. On and on and on and on we could go. I could give you lots of good advice. You may agree with some of it. You may have your own good advice. The gospel is not good advice. It's a declaration It's shorthand for essential Christianity. God has won the greatest battle. We no longer need to live in fear. God wins, and he offers it to us. That is the gospel. I love J.D. Greer. He summarizes in his little book, Essential Christianity. In Romans, you find the gospel is who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he brings, what he brings He's the son of God in power. That was Romans 1, 4, this declaration with his resurrection. Now this, this new title, he's always been the son of God, but now as the resurrected, ascended son of God, he's the son of God in power. Who he is. What has he done? He's defeated death for us by dying under our curse that we deserve, rising again. We're going to see that in Romans chapters 3, 5, and 6. He's brings a new creation in which former enemies are reconciled, friends live in love, and peace reigns, and so much more. Chapters 12 through 16. Who Jesus is, what he's done, what he brings. The gospel, friends. Good news, good news, good news. Not good advice, good news. It's also not the effects of the gospel. The gospel brings a lot of effects. It, it, it brings should bring uh, a change in how we live and how we treat one another and different things like that. But there's a church down the road from us that every week they they feed the poor every morning. That is not the gospel. 
That is not the gospel. That is good works that they're loving their neighbors, which is important. That is not the gospel. The gospel is, once again, this declaration of who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, most specifically about who his son is and what he's done and what he brings. And Paul says, I am not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed at all. Put positively, I'm I'm proud of this message. I have great confidence in this message. But why? Why would Paul have great confidence? Again, we're stepping our way through verse 16. You know, this message, it can get people in trouble. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross, that's another way to speak of the good news of what God has done, who he is, what he's doing, right? The cross. He said there, it's folly, it's foolishness to those who, who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's some similar words, salvation, being saved, power, this, this gospel of who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, to some people is foolishness. And what do people do who think things that you think are foolish? They, they laugh at you, they mock you. It, it could be embarrassing. There would be some degree of embarrassment for Paul, even especially in the capital of the Gentile world there in Rome. Tim Keller, before he died a few years ago, wrote about how in our day, we can be ashamed of the gospel. I want you to hear these four points that Keller wrote. How is the gospel offensive? Number one, the gospel, by telling us that our salvation is free and undeserved, that's insulting to some people. It tells us that we're, we're spiritual failures and we're such spiritual failures that the only way to gain this salvation is for it to be a complete gift, that, that offends moral and religious people who think that their decency gives them an advantage over less moral people. That's one way the gospel is offensive. Second, the gospel is also really insulting by telling us that Jesus died for us. It tells us that we're so wicked, only the death of the Son of God could save us. That's offensive to modern people and the so-called cult of self-expression, the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. Someone had to die for me? Number three, the gospel, by telling us that trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough, thereby the gospel insists that no good person will be saved, but only those who come to God through Jesus. I remember as a, as a dad, uh, we would talk to the kids about the gospel. And one of the things we'd try to do from time to time is kind of pose this question, do good people go to heaven? And naturally, every kid wants to say yes, because hopefully we're raising our kids to be good people. It's, it's good to be good. So it would make logical sense that good people go to heaven, bad people don't. But that's not the gospel. Good people don't go to heaven. Hear hear me. Good people do not go to heaven. Good people do not get salvation. Good people are not rescued. People who receive the gospel. 
get God, get heaven. Faith, well, we'll see that in a moment. Trust in the gospel is, is what gets someone to heaven. And that's offensive when, when, again, people think being good gets them. Number four, Keller writes, the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus, specifically by his suffering and, and his life, his serving. It didn't come by him conquering and destroying. And the gospel says that to follow Jesus means we will likely suffer also. And we, we will struggle. The gospel is not a, here you go, your life will be easy now. Pass. And some people think it is, some people think it should. And that's, that's offensive. Some people want their life, their salvation, their Christian life to be easy. And that can be offensive to people who expect a safe and comfortable life. The gospel is offensive to some people. Sometimes we, I've been thinking about this for a few months. Sometimes I think we, we think we're more compassionate than God. Because, <laughs> you know, why is this considered wrong? And why is this a sin? And if I, you know, if it was up to me, you know. And, and we, we, we think we're more compassionate than God. And then as we, we unpack the results of the gospel and how we're supposed to live, we go, oh, you know, wow, God has said certain things kind of define life. And, and those things aren't the gospel. Again, the gospel is a declaration of what God has done through specifically Jesus to bring about salvation and, and things. We're going to finish that up in just a moment. But, but then there's other things that like ripples in a, in a river, like when a rock hits and, and things go out, there's other consequences. If, if the gospel saves and if people don't respond to the gospel and then they're not saved, whoa, really? That, that's offensive. We, we can get embarrassed by that. But Paul is not ashamed, not embarrassed. Why? Well, because what we've been teasing out, right in the middle of verse 16, he says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. If you have an ESV, it says, for it. It, grammatically, is speaking of the gospel. I am not ashamed of this good news, for this good news is the power of God for salvation. News is the power of God for salvation. Do you catch that? News is the power of God for salvation. A declaration of some event in history that has happened is the power of God for salvation. This word power, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, and it, again, it fits right in line with what the New Testament writers would have heard in their Old Testament or their Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, which speaks over and over of a personal God who uniquely possesses power and manifests, shows that power to save his people, to deliver them from Egypt, from Pharaoh, from other oppressors. God's power saves over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It's his power that delivers. It's his power that rescues. It's his power that saves. And so Paul's just saying, yes, this gospel is the power of God for salvation. And salvation, again, a very rich word, a very complete word um, in its 
in the Bible, in the New Testament, to save um, speaks of a lot of different things. To be saved from this enemy or that, it doesn't always speak of a spiritual salvation. In Paul, it does mostly speak of a spiritual being saved, being rescued. And so how is a person rescued, saved by this power? This power is what? It's this declaration, this announcement. There was a bishop in the fifth century, a Syrian bishop by the name of Theodret, and he likened the gospel, the, the message, to, to a pepper. Some of you like spicy hot peppers. You'll appreciate this. Some of us on the milder, weaker side, we can relate. So this bishop, he wrote this. He said, a pepper outwardly seems cold, but the person who crunches it between their teeth experiences a burning sensation. And in the same way, the gospel can appear at first like an interesting theory or philosophy, but when taken in personally, we feel the full power. It's a great illustration. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Salvation means to be saved, to be rescued. It's not just your ticket to heaven. To be saved isn't just, I got my boarding pass, it's on my app, on the phone, I'm, I'm good. To be saved is to be, yes, ready for that, but in the meantime, it's, it's to have your identity changed. The Bible speaks of being brought from death to life, to being brought from darkness to light, to being a new creation. We are saved, the Bible's gonna say, and even in Romans, we'll see this. We are being saved, we will be saved. To be saved speaks of all the full realm of, of this picture. And so how does someone get this? Again, Paul is moving with these clauses. I am not ashamed of this gospel. This gospel is the power of God to save. For who? To everyone who believes, who, who trusts, who has faith in. And, and again, biblically, we'll see it in Romans. To have faith in, to have trusted means to repent to turn to God, and it's, it's available to everyone. And what some of us know, what Paul's going to unpack in Romans is that even though it's offered to everyone, not everyone receives it. Not everyone does. In fact, only those who are called or chosen or predestined do respond to it. But it goes out. The gospel call goes out, even though in God's sovereignty, it's only the elect who respond to it, but it's offered And so Paul says, I'm eager to go to Rome. I'm eager. I can't wait to share the gospel because I'm not ashamed of this message. I'm not ashamed of what God has done, especially in Jesus, his perfect life, his going to the cross to forgive sins, his rising, his being uh, exalted to this place of son of God and power, the fact that he's going to make all things right in the end. I'm not ashamed of this message for it is the message is the power of God to save for whoever believes. And he says to the Jew first, also to the Greek, meaning um, it's to the Jew first, right? It, it came through Jesus, the fulfillment of Judaism, the, the Jewish Messiah, but it's for the Gentiles as well, for everyone who believes. Friends, this is the gospel and this is why it matters. As Keller said, I've, I've mentioned this quote before, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's not just what we teach the little kids over there. 
Learn the gospel ABCs and then come sit in here and listen to a a 40-minute long sermon. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. Or again, J.D. Greer, he says, the gospel is not just the diving board into the pool that is Christianity. The gospel is the pool. The good news, you are saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. It's all of God. It's all from God. We respond to it, we believe it, we trust it. God, though, is the decisive agent, the decisive one acting. In the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. Some people think of the Apostle Paul. But in in Hebrews, the author says that Jesus, right, the object of this news, that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us his siblings. He's not embarrassed to call us his brothers and sisters. That's remarkable. I'm not a very good brother to Jesus sometimes, but he's not ashamed of me. Later in Hebrews, it says that God is not ashamed to be our God. He's not embarrassed about us. No wonder Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of this message because he's not ashamed of me. Look what he did. He loves me no matter who I am, no no matter I'm the chief of sinners, which that's another book, uh, what he's going to say in Romans, no matter that I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do, I'm not ashamed of this message. It is the power of God for salvation. Friends, I want us not to be ashamed either. As a church, uh, as individuals, this message is what saved you. Let's, Let's be heralds of it. Let's be Good newsers, let's be people with lovely feet. Would you stand? And we're going to sing one final song this morning. God, thank you for the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he's doing. May we be confessionally evangelical confessionally gospel people, confessionally gospel individuals who also are not embarrassed, not ashamed of this message. May we, like the Apostle Paul, take pride in it and celebrate it because it is the power of God for salvation. We thank you that we have experienced it, many of us, most of us, We thank you that you're not done displaying your power. And so as we've been praying even for people in our life, our our one, even now we think of these names, would you save these different people that we call to mind who need this gospel? Would you use us? And now as we end our gathering and sing of what we believe, strengthen and nourish us, I pray. In Jesus' name.